Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. A little while back, you invited uh, your friend Rich and I out for a screening of, of Rams, Chris, which I appreciated very much. This is before the official film was released, and in fact, there were a couple of, of cuts made to the released version that uh, we were privy to be able to see in the, the pre-release. As a backer of the Kickstarter, I was getting updates for pre-release screenings of the movie, and we found one here in Ottawa, fortunately. So the three of us went out uh, one night and we saw Rams ahead of time, and it has recently started streaming on Vimeo, and I don't know if anywhere else. We'll have to take a look and see if it's out there anywhere else. Wherever it is, we'll link to it. It's traveling the world, though. I mean, they've opened it all over the place. Yeah, there are viewings available in uh, in theaters as well. So uh, depending on where you are, you can uh, either stream it or see it in a, a proper theater, if you I will. Think we both kickstarted it. Yeah, yeah, both you and I were Kickstarter backers. So it was. Uh, yeah, it's kind of nice that it's out. And now that it is out and we've been able to watch it a second time and uh, take some notes this time, we uh, decided to sit down and have a little conversation about it because it's the kind of thing that we all like to talk about. Well, what drew each of you to help kickstart it? I have had his uh, principles of design on the wall of my office. I have a whole series of cartoons and bits of artwork and quotes about design, which generally all come down to remove everything out of the design over and over again. You know, uh, I I had no idea who he was, but I saw the quotes somewhere. So I printed them out and I put them right on the door beside my office as I would leave. So anytime I left my office, I would glance at them, look, you know, tried to look at a different one each time and head off to whatever meeting I was going to and then tell people to remove all the buttons, you know, hide the logos and whatnot. Uh, after having seen that, I, you'd go around and see Dieter Rams here and there everywhere. And, and it just, everybody would be talking about him. So was you realize okay this is an actual guy this is a serious person and then you you start to learn about his career and it's pretty impressive Mm -hmm. yeah for me i think it was researching what johnny ive was doing he he's certainly been the most influential designer of the modern world in during my lifetime and of course when you start going into what he did and and his principles of design it is thoroughly rooted in what Dieter was doing so of course finding out about what johnny was talking about what johnny was doing it's like okay great now let's go and take a look and see what what this this guy Dieter is doing and then you realize oh okay my childhood was designed by Dieter rams and you know any any anybody who's grown up since the 50s has probably seen brown products that he's actually designed or or not necessarily designed this is something we'll talk about a little bit later but his team designed and were heavily influenced by him. So it was, it was fascinating to see that. And it was, it's been interesting as well. The more I've read about Johnny and the way that his design team at Apple works, it actually works very similar to how Dieter's team worked at, um, at Brown as well. So there, there was a lot of crossover there and, and that's what, that's what eventually drew me into it. And when I saw that uh, Gary Hustwit was doing the video, uh, he's somebody who's, uh, documentaries I have enjoyed considerably, um, specifically Helvetica and Objectified. 
I'm a big fan of both of those. And so it was, uh, it was nice to see that he's doing that. So what were your overall impressions of the film? It was, it was interesting to see him talking about design at the end of his life. And, and it's sort of sad to say this because it is he, the man's 87, I think now, 88. He celebrated his, his 85th birthday as part of the, the documentary. Yeah, so, but that was filmed yeah, a few years ago exactly. now. So, so. I, I think he's 87 or 88. So and sadly, no matter how well he's, you know, how healthy he is, he, he is at the end of his life. So it's interesting hearing somebody who who is at that point and he doesn't have to worry about who his next client is and whether they're going to be offended by comments that he's made. He doesn't have to worry about running into somebody at a design awards because he, he doesn't care. He doesn't go to design awards. So it's in some ways it's refreshing to hear somebody who is obviously opinionated. And I think anybody who creates such, what's the term I'm looking for? Like his, his designs are very, very, ideological and somebody who's created this kind of ideology around their design they're going to have strong opinions and it's nice to hear somebody with those strong opinions actually talking about them Mm -hmm. i was thinking of it like uh kind of an old man syndrome Mm. kind of thing where you you get to a point where you you just don't give a fuck anymore yeah and off you go which so you have an unfiltered voice uh, what he's thinking kind of just blurts out, which is refreshing, I suppose, in a world where opinions are filtered so heavily by almost everybody. and uh, Especially in the design and art world, people tend to yeah. filter their opinions heavily. So it's particularly refreshing coming from Dieter Rams because he is a very thinking and thoughtful designer. And you can see it in the back wall of his studio just covered in, in books and check out other interviews with him he says that a lot of his time designing is actually just spent like reading and researching and, and thinking and just the way that he sculpts his bonsai trees even i think that's a, a time for him to reflect and reminisce and, and let things stew and and percolate so i think a lot of what's coming out of the the film or coming out in his words are very refined little gems that have been polished over his years of experience. And I don't think he's done a huge number of interviews over the years. I, I know that there's one of the women who's interviewed in the movie, she wrote a biography of him. Sophie Lovell. Yeah. And I, I, I haven't had a chance to read that yet. I'm, I'm curious to, to go back and find that now. But I don't think there are a lot of documentaries or interviews with him that go into any real depth. So he's been pretty quiet most of his most of his career. And I know he certainly has written some things and he's done uh talks at uh you know one of the a couple of the scenes that are in the movie he's giving talks at at a design museum and and uh he's open to questions from the floor but that obviously doesn't get out into the world. Uh also I suspect a lot of it is in German and has never been translated. So it's interesting as an English speaking person to hear his thoughts and hear him talking about what he's doing i think as well a lot of his stuff ends up getting cut into little pieces and you know they're sort of sound bites in another another movie because i think in objectified he has a little bit but it's very very short Mm -hmm. Um, because i think the the origins of this movie were actually gary hustwit filming for objectified and i think he talked to dieter a little bit absolutely so it's nice to see an essay or a novella his life condensed to a top 10 list 
<laughs> I guess there are worse things that could happen to you. Did he make that list early in his life? That was something that I noted, actually, in the movie. He talks about that, and he, he did that in the 70s. Yeah. So that's not early in his career. He had been designing for 20-plus years at that point. But it makes sense. You, it's pretty damn pretentious to yeah. come up with your 10 principles of design in your first year of work. And then it's like, it is good to do that, but it can also be uh, narrowing in what you can do. Like now, like, like what if he wants to do something and break one of his 10 rules? Well, that's what I found interesting from the film is that he says outright that he, he never intended for these principles to be set in stone, but for them to be evolved and adapted. And that's something I think a lot of people have failed to realize is that they, they think that they are the Ten Commandments and they must not be broken. And I know when I think about my own design, because I, every time I, I create a design, I evaluate it using what I know of to be quote-unquote good design principles. And of course, you can't do that without thinking about his design principles. And I know that there are several of them that I absolutely violate on a regular basis. And I'm okay with that because I've realized that to create the things that I'm creating and uh, I need to violate some of those designs. I'm not making a razor. I'm not making a, a you know, a, a food processor. I'm designing a, something that's, that's sort of high art and I, I need to break some of those rules. And, and, the, and you should. Yeah. But you, and you can do it knowingly. Yes. You know, and, and that's better, a good way to say, okay, I'll look through these. Like I would, coming in and out of my office, I would, I'd, I'd say, oh, well, we didn't do that today. <laughs> and then go look at some absolute horror that somebody has coded up and go, oh, maybe we should. Yeah, and I think willfully breaking and knowledgeably breaking a rule is important. You You have to, once you know the rules and you understand them, you can knowingly and willfully break a rule and use it effectively. The same thing happens with photographers. I know a lot of beginning photographers, they're so set on, oh, I, I must shoot using the rule of thirds. I must, you know, shoot using this zone exposure, mm -hmm. you know, system. And, you know, I have to make everything look like an Ansel Adams photo. And at the end of the day, all you're doing is just copying what other people have done you don't start creating your own voice until you start breaking some of those rules and some of the best art in fact some of Ansel Adams best photographs completely break all of his sure. rules so it, it is an important thing that you have to get away from these rules but I think you have to understand them as well before, you know before you can really break them so we had an interesting thing here at work where we hired a UI designer to come in and uh, refresh our UI he comes in with our, our new design, and we go through it all in great detail. And one of the things in our UI at the bottom, it has a, a logo of our company. And you can swap it out. If, if you're installing it for a customer, you can put the customer's logo in at the bottom, kind of personalize the whole thing. And I notice all of that is gone, and all of it is hidden <laughs> under a menu, under another menu, and you have to open up this page. And then finally, you get to something that says, built by you know our company. I, so I was asking him, so, you know, where'd the logo go? And he's like, oh, well, you don't want the logo on the front. You don't want it in people's face. So the first thing I said to him was, uh, so you you saw the Dieter Rams movie, did you? <laughs> and, and then he looked at me blankly like, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. But 
which I think was a little, you know, of course he knows who Dieter Rems is and all that, but, but it was fun to see that same thing happen where Dieter had taken the, the brown logo and put it on the back of a radio, the part where you'd never see it up against a wall or whatever. And, uh, and that the owners had come down and immediately said, where's the logo? <laughs> We need the logo bigger. We need we need more in here, and that's yeah, that's something that he he comments on that he's he was constantly struggling. I think he said he had a dozen CEOs that he worked under in his in his tenure at at Brown. That was after Gillette took over. Yeah, yeah he was constantly fighting with CEOs who wanted the logos bigger and bigger and bigger, and he's like, no, no, we don't. I think his comment was, you don't walk into a room yelling your name and saying this is who mm-hmm. I am, right? You you need to, and I think maybe that's a that's and more how wrong with. that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so okay, he doesn't. Some of us do. Um, yeah, so that, that was an interesting, an interesting struggle that he had with, with that. Something worth noting about the, his 10 principles is that they, did, they didn't come out fully fleshed from the, from the outset. It is something that he did develop and, and adapt over time. And an interesting little anecdote that I picked up is that they, the oldest written record that shows any sort of gestation of these 10 principles was actually from a, a speech that he gave here in Canada back in 1975. Hmm. And there was a, an article written about that speech and that that's the earliest record of these, these principles starting to form. And I believe at the time it was only a, a handful, maybe six uh, at most. And then over time, he developed them into to the 10. That's good. I'm happy it didn't start out as the 600 principles of design. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny because as as I'm listening to them and I'm thinking, you know, I've read them before, so I wasn't thinking about what they were saying about them because they were they were repeating them, and and I've read them before, so that wasn't a big deal. But I'm sitting there thinking as he's as they're getting to sort of number seven or eight, and I'm like, really, he's he's violating some of his ten principles in this ten principles list because you would think that he would try and actually pare it down to something even less than that. I, I'm a little surprised he didn't come up with something that was a bit more uh, succinct than than the ten that he created. They work, and they and I think all of them are there. And a lot of times when you see them referenced as well, there's a the principle, like the words, and then there's this paragraph trying to describe what interpreting. Well, that's actually it, original. I know, and and uh, I would I the one I had in my office was was just the titles of them, okay. and and I prefer almost to use that as a guideline and interpret it myself. Mm. I don't need that paragraph telling me in great detail. I think having read the paragraph is useful, but seeing it on a daily basis. I, when I had it on my wall in my office, I had never seen it. Never it seen it the wasn't honestly until I probably was looking at them for the for this movie. Right. And I was like, oh, there's a whole explanation here. <laughs> well, I will say the, the way that Gary portrayed the, or not portrayed, the way that he laid out that section of the movie and he had Dieter reading the, um, you know, the ten principles plus the the paragraphs that go with it. The visuals that he had going with it, he did an amazing job of that because that's something that could have been incredibly boring. And I think they did a, a fabulous job of how they actually presented the, those ten principles inside of the movie. I found they they blew through them pretty pretty quickly and pretty busily, but uh, it, it got the point across. And it's not something to be belabored. Uh, I think in the film, I think the film was more about Rams and, and his life. Yeah. So I think it is good that they they blew through them as quickly as they did, but they they certainly zipped through them pretty. But quick. that's that's why I say I think it's I think it's well done because if you try and you know you you can't turn that into a twenty minute segment of a movie that's an hour and fifteen minutes long, right? You can't make it 
a fifth of the movie because that that's just you know it's outrageous it, it would be too much time taken up in it so i think that it's i think the way that the way they did it was um was good and concise and and still got the point across and the visuals that went with it were excellent as well no, i i think it was uh, a little too busy because it was pretty much a, a single product for each one that they were showing up but then they would blow by in in this barrage of frames and had it been uh multiple shots of the same project from different angles sort of showing off each of the principles or multiple products showing off each of the principles presented in that manner i think it it would have been a little more effective i think maybe that might be because you're also reading the uh subtitles at the same time Uh, because the last time i watched it i ignored the subtitles and just looked at the visuals and i found them actually to be going by at a pretty good pace Mm -hmm. so that that may be worthwhile going back and watching and don't bother reading subtitles because that that I found it was a little bit easier to, to actually comprehend what was going on on screen. And actually, you, you bring up this, the subtitles. It's a, a good point. One of my initial impressions of the, the film after watching it was I, I immediately wanted to watch it again. And I wasn't sure whether that was because the movie had been subtitled and I was so focused on the, the subtitles that I couldn't take everything else in. But I, I think the, the reality was that when I went back and watched it a second time, it's just that there's just so much distilled wisdom and, and life being poured out through the film that there's just a lot to soak in, in in the documentary yeah i think if you're interested in design and you and you do want to learn from something like this it is worthwhile watching it a few times over because there is a lot in there and it's um it's certainly not something that you're going to get it all in one in one viewing the intent of these 10 principles is to, to come up with someone somewhat of a definition of what good design is now you've been walking by these principles for years rich how would you distill or define what what good design is what is good design to you i like things that are simple that hide the complexity but i hate when technology knows something and hides it from you but i want so i want to be i don't want to have things hidden so much that i can't access them or that there that are uh, that I hate technology that treats me like an idiot, but I hate, uh, so I'm seeing what I hate. I'm thinking about things that, uh, that come up day to day in work. And often it, people will, people will be designing something and then they can't make a decision about it. And then they'll say, oh, we'll just put that in as an option or as a setting. And I, I hate that feeling because it feels like a, a mistake or a loss or a bad design. It's fine to hide it from the main UI and then you think, oh, I'll just put it in the settings app. And then I'm just thinking about what we do at work here. But I, I hate that too. And I, I, I want design to be much, much smarter than that mm. and, and yet not, not treat me like an idiot. And uh, we come up with things like that when uh, we're looking at AI or 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 we're making an application smarter, but not adding a lot to it. I guess something that came up was having a list of phone numbers and then being able to choose favorites. And so, and people were saying, let's just put stars beside the favorites. And, and then it'll automatically know about those. And, and uh, I, I just was railing against that saying, no, the application should figure out what your favorites are. That should be obvious to the application and you shouldn't need a setting for it. And I shouldn't need to deal with it. It should just happen. It, you know, and it can change day by day, week by week, type of call I'm on and all that. Anyway, I'm diverging into things that are in my, my day to day life. But, um, so the simplicity was, was powerful to me. 
I wasn't as concerned about things like uh, there's one of the one of the bottom principles is about uh, uh, recycling and uh, all that kind of thing. So number nine, good design is environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. Those those kind of things don't come up too much for me. Although I, it's important overall. Like in, I guess on a larger scale, yeah, on a worldwide scale. Well, I think not. it depends a lot on what types of things are you designing. If you're designing a piece of software, there there are impacts on things like CPU usage. If you're if you're running something like Amazon, your mm-hmm. design choices are going to have a significant impact on the world because people today write code with no idea of how much energy it takes to run. Exactly. And, and this is when when you if you want to see just how much of an impact that kind of thing can make, go and look at the worldwide energy usage of people who are mining for Bitcoin. Ugh. And you start to see yeah. the, how much of an impact you can have on the world when when it comes to to your code. But uh, if you're designing something where you are making a physical product, in my case, I'm making tens of things. If you're making, if you're Johnny Ive and you've just made the latest iPhone and, oh, guess what? They've just sold 86 million of them this quarter. Well, all of a sudden, those little changes that you make have an, a massive impact on the world around you. And you have to make those decisions. Otherwise, it's going to have, it's going to have that significant impact. And even in, in my choice, I'm using, you know, all my precious metals are recycled. None of them are, are coming out of the ground. They're all being recycled from either industry or from the jewelry world. I'm choosing to make something like a, a pen, which is refillable, as opposed to something that has cartridges in it that, where those cartridges get thrown out. I'm making watches that require you to manually wind the watch as opposed to putting a battery into it. Those are all choices that I've made. And part of the reason that I've made them is one they will last much longer. I, I don't have to worry about somebody 300 years from now trying to find a particular pen cartridge that goes into that pen, but also because at the end of the day, it is more sustainable. It is it is better for the environment, even though I'm only making tens of something. You know, a hard one in today's technology is long-lasting. Good design is long-lasting. Hmm. And... And that's hard. Like if you look at an Apple Watch or an Apple phone, or any electronic device, yeah. In in ten years, like the the connectors don't work, the power adapters don't work. Nothing, you know. And the operating system has become so bloated that it won't run on that device anymore. All that. So like it's it's a it's kind of an automatic fail in high, any technology, in, in technology is an automatic fail. Yeah. Even cars, you know, it's it's difficult to find even a car that's 100 years old, which when you think about objects that have been made in this world, 100 years is not a very old object. And they are incredibly challenging to operate. In some cases, even impossible to drive because you just don't understand how the heck to drive one of these things, mm-hmm. right? You've got clutches that, well, you don't have a clutch. That's part of the problem in some cases. And you know, it's, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to be able to run these things. So yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge. Anytime you want to make something that, that lasts a long time with watches, we're losing the skills to make the parts for some of these old watches. 
There's certainly fewer people today who are able to make replacement parts for some of these watches than, you know, any time in the last couple hundred years, I think. And that's something that we have to be concerned about, how for something that is going to be sustainable in last hundreds of years, how do we maintain the skill set to be able to actually repair and replace it? That's easy. Make YouTube videos. No, 3D printing. <laughs> 3D, 3D printing doesn't quite I, cut it. I yeah. think it will. I think it, it will get to a point where you can, you'll be able to 3D print metal on a, on a scale where you can make watch parts just right out of the box. Well, so additive manufacturing is there. Because if you look at things like Liga and whatnot, but the 3D printing is a, a different ballgame. Whereas Liga, you're essentially assembling an object at an atomic level, atom by atom, or molecule by molecule, rather, and piecing it, it together. But we will get to a point where... At, at some point you, you will. You, yeah. But you also need to still understand the the mechanics of it. You need to understand how the, you know, the angles of a part and... And things like that. Because in some cases, it's easy if you're rep- replicating a part, but what happens if you don't have the part? And and so that is that is a challenge. I've written notes about how I've made the objects that I've made. And I don't send them to the people that buy them, but they do exist. So 200 years from now, somebody could find my notes and be able to say, oh, this is the process that he used for making this thing. These are the adhesives he used here. These are the, the solders that he used there. And, you know, oh, I can't believe how primitive that. You should ship it with your watch. Ship all that. Why not? I agree. Like, it's cool. Like, like, and and people talk about the, uh, or the history of their uh, provenance. The provenance of something. Yeah, of, you know, that thing comes with a whole, uh, yeah, and you don't have to clean them up or anything. Just, just, you know, and it would become, like, imagine a a watch collector buying your, your watch for, you know, they're a hundred thousand bucks or whatever it is. And then they get this whole, this whole thing and see how it was made. It would be mm. fascinating. I mean, if you're into watches and all that, why not? Yeah, that might be, yeah, that might be an interesting thing to do. Any in, secrets. in the case of the, in the case of cases and pens and things like that, they're very standard jewelry techniques that I've used for making that stuff. But when it comes to eventually making watch movements, that would certainly be worthwhile because there are choices that have been made there that in terms of materials and, um, and this, when you lose your nose, then you just call up someone who call bought one of your watches hey, and say, I sold you this watch 10 years away. ago. I'm, I'm trying to make a copy of it. I absolutely can't sell this thing back on. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I did. Yeah. <laughs> so what's good design to you, Chris, if you were to, to sum it up in a word? One of the things, one of the notes that I wrote down here, he said, you can't understand good design without understanding people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually one of the most important quotes from this movie because most people think of good design as being the visuals of what you're looking at but that's not actually the most important part of good design good design is is about how an item is used and something that is well designed you should not realize that it is well designed in my making uh, let's say pens because that's primarily what I've made over my career Something like the balance of a pen is something that I've thought about a lot and how well it writes. Now, my pens are heavy. They're, you know, they're 90 grams, which is a lot of weight in a, in a pen for, you know, for most people, they don't, you know, it's about three ounces for, for um, the Imperial folks. That's a heavy item to have in your hand. And 
if it wasn't well-made and if it wasn't well-balanced, it would be incredibly uncomfortable to write with. And so that that idea of good design is it really needs to be usable. It needs to be something that's functional. And that I think is, for me at least, is the most the single most important part of good design is make something that's usable, make something that can actually, that somebody enjoy enjoys using and doesn't realize why. They don't understand that the reason that they're enjoying it is because of a conscious decision that you made when you were designing and making it. Well, it's it's like a, it should feel good, mm-hmm. like what you're saying. Like it's almost a sensual kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look at it like uh, you, if you buy a really crappy screwdriver and you go to use it, yeah, it's miserable. It's horrible to use. And if you and then you you buy a really good one and you could hold them up beside each other and you, you say these are two screwdrivers and and they're you know, but one is an absolute joy to use. And just it just fits right in the hand, and it doesn't hurt anywhere, and all that. And you get a good grip on it, a good uh, torque. And the other one is uh, completely useless. So there was uh, an interesting incident that happened to me at a pen show, a DC pen show, five or six years ago. And I had a gentleman come up to my table, and he, had, you know, one of the, at, at these shows, they're three, four days long. So you often see the same people over and over again because they're there all weekend, and they come back, and they. You know, they chat with you and and they may not make a decision to buy something until later in the show. And I had been watching him going around to certain tables that I knew were selling higher-end pens. And he had been writing with a bunch of them and trying a bunch of them out. And he ended up coming and buying one of my pens. And it was interesting because I won't say which pen it was that he had been comparing it with. But the pen that he was looking at was twice the price of what mine was. Half the weight and significantly less comfortable to write with. The the designers had given no thought to how the pen felt in the hand, how it wrote and, and everything. He's like, I would be happy to have spent that money. I, he's like, I, I came here expecting to spend that much money. And I won't because your pen is, is better designed than that one and is more comfortable to write with and I'll actually use it. That one I'll never use because it's it's just too uncomfortable. But he says, I wouldn't have realized that without being able to compare them. And it was that, that sort of very close comparison that, that allowed him to do it's it. It's bizarre to go to all the trouble of making a pen and making it crappy. You know, and, it takes some effort. charging that much for it and, and not thinking about that. Yeah. It, it's, it's horrifying to me when you look at the usability of things and how, how people so, just don't so think So how do you, like, what's the best way to go about designing a pen? Is it, like, make the mechanics of, without any design on it at all, just a, a solid cylinder uh, and then get it with the right weight, the right feel. Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to work in the material that you're working, that you want to make the, the final thing in. That's, yeah. that's the first part of the problem because... Or simulate it. Well, except that it's difficult in some cases. In, in my case, silver has a very specific mass to it. It has a specific gravity and it is not similar to many other metals. So I can't make it out of brass because brass is different in specific gravity than silver. Copper is different than silver. Gold is different than silver. Steel is different than silver. So in my case, I, I actually started out by working in in the metals that I was I wanted the pen to be in. 
and then you're right you you start working in a very basic shape in in the case in my case the ornamentation does not affect the balance or the mass of the pen at all it's it's really the the overall design of it and so i made you know i spent six months making probably 20 or 30 prototypes and saying no this one doesn't feel right no this one doesn't feel right oh that one's gone too far you know what you need is some kind of like threaded rod kind of thing that simulates the balance like 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 you can have the weight of it you can Mm -hmm. make parts of it of lead you can put balance you know things in you can simulate exactly the feel of it to some degree and and then just have this thing where you get what happens if i move the balance back a little bit or up a little bit and all that get all that settled and to some degree i've done that so one of the one of the more recent series of pens that i've done is using uh, acrylics and celluloids for the barrel of the pen and except from the very first you know, sort of six months that I was making pens when I was making pen kits. I haven't worked in acrylics for a very long time. You know, it's been a decade since I've made pens out of acrylics. And so I ended up doing something similar to that. Now, the nice thing with acrylics is that it has almost no mass to it. So you can drill out large sections of it and it doesn't really affect it. And then what I did was I started putting different length uh, threaded brass sections into it to adjust the weights. So in the case of something like that, I, I was able to do it in a way that you're, you know, similar to what you're talking about. And then the next thing is that you have to, you have to live it. You have to live with the item. So, you know, one of the things right now, if you see, I'm double watching it right now. I've got my Apple watch on one wrist and I've got my prototype on the other wrist. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I need to live with this watch. I need to live with this design what do I not like about it? Now, some of the things that I don't like about it are things that I already knew because, you know, there are problems with the lugs and things like that. But I won't, you know, a couple of people have said, oh, when when's your watch going to be for sale? When's your watch going to be for sale? It's like, well, I have to wear ready. this when it's ready. But I have to wear this for the next six months before I know all of the problems with it. And different people should as well. You should yeah. you should be handing them out to oh, yeah. a small group of people. Any Anyone you can think of off the top of your head? Not really, but <laughs> John, you interested in one? I'll support one for a bit if you want me to. But, but I've, I've got a, a feeling that uh, I just want to cross the table for me with the a hankering, hankering. Yeah, Rich is, is hankering for one. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, you, you, you just you you fear the honest opinion. That's why. <laughs> Are you saying that you suffer from old man syndrome, Rich? <laughs> That could be a good thing for you. It might be. Yeah. Could be dropping pearls of wisdom. <laughs> so you've got the the ten principles there in front of you, Rich. Do you mind reading them so we have them here and recorded sure. for posterity for anyone who might not be familiar with what Rams's ten principles actually are? Good design is innovative. Good design makes a pros- a product useful. Good design is aesthetic. Good design makes a product understandable. Good design is unobtrusive. Good design is honest. Good design is long-lasting. Good design is thorough, down to the last detail. Good design is environmentally friendly. And good design is as little design as possible. That's the one I struggle with the most. And I have to... I have to remember that design and ornamentation are not necessarily the same thing. And that's where that's where my my comment earlier about how people often conflate the two. And, and I have to intentionally disassociate them in my head because the things that I am making are intentionally ornamental. 
and so I have to for, I have to forget that the that that ornamentation does not necessarily affect the design. That's because you haven't ascended. I haven't ascended to to Johnny's way. A room. true, simple, solid cylinder of a perfectly balanced. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I, I appreciate something actually in the watch world, something like a Nomos watch. I love their design, and I and I think they are probably the epitome in the watch world right now of these design principles and and they certainly get that um you know that last one the uh um you know good design is as little design as possible but i'm interested in doing something a little different so i have to i have to remove my aesthetics and the you know the the ornamentation that i'm putting on it from the design because there is still intentional design in the rest of it nomos is still playful with a number of the the pieces they've come out with yeah but I, I think of of all of the watches that are out there. I think they are certainly the closest to that prototypical sort of Bauhausian, brown look. Yeah. yeah. The one thing that I found uh, was an interesting tidbit from the bonus features uh, that weren't a part of the actual documentary itself was I was unaware of this, but the the Bauhaus uh, grew up out of or as a, a reaction to this flu epidemic that wiped out uh, just a huge portion of Germany. Millions of people died and like objects and belongings were just burned to try and purge the, the flu from mm-hmm. society. And out of the, the ashes rose the, this Bauhaus movement, which then after World War II gave rise to the, the Elm School, uh, which helped inform the design at Brown and, um, as well, the the same sort of principles were applied at the the school that that Dieter Rems attended to learn design and, and architecture. One of my notes that I have here about the ten principles was that he actually they came out of his questioning of what he was doing and how much was he destroying the planet because mm-hmm. they're starting to realize at the time, all right, we've we're putting all this injection molded plastic into the world. How much of an impact am I making on destroying this planet? Yeah, I think the combination of the Bauhaus ideology and then the environmentalism of the 70s certainly have have gone a long way to informing how he designs and what he designs. So you're going to make a Bauhaus pen? Simple? See, the trouble is you just need to go on a little trip to, to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. See, the problem is if I go on a trip to Germany, then what I'm going to be doing is picking up all the Gothic architecture and sticking <laughs> it into into things. In fact, one of my one of my favorite pens is a uh, there's a series of overlays that I've done. It's a silver overlay over a black acrylic barrel, and the overlays are are three dimensional shapes based on 15th century Gothic architecture. And in fact, they were they came from a design of a wooden railing. Uh, it was the panels underneath the railing in a house in Dresden. Unfortunately, the, the house no longer exists thanks to the allies in the war, but there are detailed drawings of these panels. And so I've I've created these great, you know, it's great overlays based on it. And they have these wonderful trefoil shapes in them that are three-dimensional. And I love, one of the things I love about that pen is handing it to people and watching them. When I when I when when they pick it up, the first thing I do is I try and distract them from the pen. And I start talking to them about something and ask them questions so that they're no longer thinking about the fact that they've got this pen in their hand. And all of them start sitting there and they rub their thumb up and down it and they, they play with the details and they play with the shapes. So uh, that if, if I ended up in Germany, that's 
you would see a whole bunch of gothic designed pens because that's uh i, I love that architecture i love what it's uh, what it's doing can you make shapes like that that i'm still going to say are sensual that mm-hmm. are not visible that's a good question i'll have to think about that because then you're crossing over and you're solving all your itches. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. Something that occurred to me too, watching the the film that I think likely played a role in informing Ram's aesthetic was the fact that you know he was like twelve or thirteen when the war ended. He's living with his grandparents. His parents are in the midst of a divorce, uh, so he's spending all his time in his, his grandfather's shop. But basically, everything around them has been destroyed. So he's starting with a clean canvas, a clean slate. And you've got all these buildings and apartments popping up just to get people into to houses. So they've got these small spaces to live in. And so he really just pair everything back to the bare essentials. I guess I'm reflecting on my, my own life as well and why I, I don't live in a, a white room, so to speak, or, or why I I deeply respect uh, Ramses' 10 principles, and uh, I do try and apply them in, in my own life. I don't see myself living this pristine, sterile environment. And I'm realizing part of that is uh, because of things that have been passed on to me from my, my grandparents and my, my parents, and in some cases, you know, great-grandparents of, of myself or my wife. And these are they're objects that are, are meaningful to us, so they don't necessarily fit in with this paired-back aesthetic. So that our house is uh, it's a little warmer than that, but I still uh, admire and appreciate uh, very simple designs. And there's this this balance that that occurs in our our space. But I'm more drawn to to say that the warmth of wood than the cool touch of of metal. You know what I liked that Dieter Rams had in uh, as he drove around uh, in a taxi. He had a cane. Mm. And uh, it looked uh, sort of like a, an upside-down musical note or a, a number nine with a, a circle at the top and then a, a straight stick coming down, but not from one, the end, from sort of one-third the way down on the bottom uh, radius. It was, uh, I don't know if it's something specifically designed for him or if it's an off-the-shelf cane, but it was uh, really neat in the way that he, he could hold it different ways. It would, you know, you could put it on your arm very easily. Uh, you could lean it up against something. It had enough weight to stay up. Uh, uh, you could hang it over the back of a chair, you know, all, all these things. It was a, a really well-designed thing. And so it, it was showing him, uh, assuming he didn't fabricate this on his own, but uh, it's interesting to see the things that he is using and and has purchased um, that he didn't design. Mm -hmm. What, what, you know, I didn't see him sitting in front of a Mac or... uh, No, I I don't think he... Well, this one of the comments that I I wrote down when I was watching this is that he is a Luddite. He really is not interested in the modern world in terms of technology. He's, you know, maybe to, maybe a bit to his detriment, he, he lives entirely in a world that he created. When you see his house, he's lived there for 50 years. And everything in that house is something that he made. No, the typewriter wasn't. Okay. The the typewriter wasn't. Oh, one of the chairs, the, some of the, so the chairs in the kitchen, that they actually caught my eye. And the, the aesthetic there is actually similar to the cane. What mm. interested me about the, the chairs is 
I don't know that they're the exact model, but they look like the the Thornay number fourteen, which is one of the first um, mass produced designed for a a purpose. Like everything paired back, like one of the, I would say the the object that sort of sparked this genre of industrial design that Dieter Rams inhabits. And this chair was was first mass produced back in the the middle of the eighteen hundreds. And it's just very simple, paired back to to the bare essentials, and only what is absolutely necessary is there. And he's got a, a set of four of them around the the kitchen table there for for. Him. But his office is a hundred percent him. Oh yes, there yeah. there's nothing other as you say Minus other than his typewriter. typewriter. Yeah, other and all than, the tomes of books. I mean, they're they're not. Well, he didn't he didn't write the books, obviously. But the when you look at the furniture, when you look at the designed things that are in there, it, it is it is his life. And I have to say that that I I admire the man for doing that. He he is not just you know he's standing, living his stuff. He's living what yeah. he preaches, right? Although he probably went into work and said, "I need a coach. <laughs> so, <laughs> I need a coach. I'm going to go over here and going to make up a the big line next year is going to be around coaches." <laughs> so that was that was one of the interesting things that happened was that he started designing for Vitsu, and he he talked to the Brown brothers and said. You know, is this a problem? Because I'm spending this time designing for these guys and I'm making furniture. And they said, you know, that's fine. You can go off, design your furniture. You know, go off in your little project over there and design your furniture. And that's okay. So yeah, he didn't he didn't design the furniture under Brown, but all the rest of the those things, the shelving units, the although no, actually, I think those are Vitsu, aren't they? The, the shelving the sh- units are Vitsu as well. Yeah. yeah. But Brown saw that relationship and that offshoot for theater as being synergistic yes because you need a place to to put your your stereos of course and, and different objects and that the two paired very well together and also helped to i think keep Dieter around at the company because it gave him an outlet for for things that he wouldn't be able to explore yeah otherwise Brown. i wonder what it would have been like if if he had worked at uh, ikea ikea a lot of their things are the same kind of aesthetic but yeah. uh how how would it have been different than if he had lived? I almost find like the the Vitsu stuff is a lot of it is is like IKEA, but a lot of his shelving and all that seems a little bit complex. Mm-hmm. You bring up the brothers as well, and I think it's worth giving them due mention because you've joked about having a patron, yeah. so that you could just continue to to work. Sure, and uh, if you look at it from the right angle, the 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 Brown brothers were they were his patron, yeah. Yeah, Rams's patrons, and there obviously he answered to them, and there's some back and forth there. But they gave him a lot of latitude and leeway to to accomplish what he did. And if not for them, uh, we wouldn't have Dieter Rams. Absolutely, you needed their vision to see that they just needed to step back and let him loose and let him out there. What I wonder though, like. Did they just leave him in a room and and then out popped a radio and then oh out popped a, a juice maker or whatever, or did they come to him and say we need a our line needs a, a this and I this get the impression from some of the comments made that it, there were things that they needed. Some of it were things that they wanted to improve. So you know they had already made radios. They had those big furniture style radios, and then the first transistors start to come out and they started making transistor radios. And so there, I think there was some of that where it was a continuation and an evolution of their line. 
But in other cases, it was things that they didn't have yet in their line. And so they said, make us this thing. We, we've recognized that we need a juicer or we need a, a food processor or something like that. And so that came out of it. One of the things that I did like about uh, Dieter's comments was that he was very clear that he did not design all of these things. I, I don't even know that he necessarily designed the majority of these things. His team designed a lot of these mm-hmm. things. And he, he, in fact, he comments on people, specific people who designed a lot of things in the, in the, uh, you know, during his tenure there. And I think that's important to realize is that even though we think of him as Mr. Brown and, and these designs are his, they're really not. He was the guiding light in sort of that group. And again, this is where the comparison to Johnny comes out because the design team at, at the industrial design team at, at Apple is not one man. Right, there are a dozen people there who are the primary designers of these items, and while Johnny is the face of that team, he is just one part of that team. Is it a dozen? It's or something it, like that. It's it's, like it's really no, no. It really is. It's something. It's it's in the like low double digits. It's not a. I don't know how it's grown in the last couple of years, but last time I had heard, it was only like eight or a dozen people. It's not a significant team. Now, obviously there is a larger team of people who go and say, all right, this is what it's going to look like. We now need you to engineer all of the little brackets and everything like that. But from the, you know, sort of the primary design team, it's not a very large team. It's uh, it's quite small. One of the impressions that I did come away with listening to him, and part of this may be sort of the old man syndrome or the being at the end of his life and not really caring, but I think that it, it still holds true because you can see the way that he's lived his life over the last 50 years. But I think he adheres a little too strictly to his ideology. He is a bit too fanatical in his own sort of world. And you can see it in the way that he comments on other people's design. For instance, when, when he's at that, um, there's an exhibition of his work at, um, at a design museum in Germany, and he's going around and looking at other people's chairs. And he has a couple of uncomplimentary things to say about, about a few pieces of furniture that are in there. Or um, George Nelson <laughs> and Frank Gehry, but I think that I think that it's he's almost to a fault. He is ideological to a fault, and I think that that maybe, well, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't need to serve him better. Maybe he doesn't. It doesn't matter because he, you know, there's room in the world for other people to design things, and and he accepts that. But I think that it would be interesting to have seen what he would have done if he had evolved a little bit more out of the sort of the strict principles that he created for himself you know maybe throw a little bit more color into things other than just an orange button here and there there's a a uh, chest of drawers that's just got a strap around it that uh, it's a droog design i remember you and i saw that at the vna yeah we saw it at the vna and i I was like oh my god i'm totally making this and and rich has 100 (laughs) photos of this piece from the vna and then and then, and then there's Dieter going, look at this horror, <laughs> this hellacious thing. Yeah, he, he certainly made good use of his cane there at the the Vitra Museum. Yeah, yeah, that was that was imp- impressive. He he pointed a lot at a lot of things and and made a lot of interesting comments about uh, about uh, If you walk around with a cane, you're going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he couldn't even bring himself to mention Mark Newson's name. <laughs> but you know, at he, the he, did, chair. he did talk about. Uh, he's. I think he said he comes or he. Maybe I just made this as a note that he comes from the generation where you can say this is bad design. Yeah, did he say that or did he, I? I think he did. And and 
Yes, and then what he says is, uh, and now what you hear is, oh, this is interesting. Like you, you're not allowed to insult. I think that was like just, the curator of the museum was. Yeah, was yeah. That, yeah. And that's and that is true. I a lot of people say, oh, that's an interesting design, or I I will refuse to talk about something. And John and I have had discussions about things that will not go to air because they're, you know, maybe a little too harsh and honest about a particular design of something. All right, I'll get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I think there is, there is something, we are a little too timid, I think, sometimes to do that. And I think it's because people are not used to a critique of something. They're not used to a sort of a meaningful evaluation of how something is created. And that's, that's difficult for, for a lot of people. You to know, I, I see this on uh, the, the Instagram now, uh, which I was not a part of at all until uh, we flew over to Maker Central. And uh, it, it occurred to me I should be part of the whole social media scene. So I signed up for the Instagram. And basically what I see on Instagram is everybody likes Everything everybody does. It's a liking culture. Yep. It's like just, you know, you, if somebody posts something, you can basically, a way to, to deal with Instagram is to have an automatic program that just goes and hearts everything that everybody puts up. Or everybody and, sees on their timeline. Yeah. yeah. Which is fine. It's nice because the other thing I hear about Instagram is like, it's such a caustic, horrible culture and all that. Among among the youth, the teens or whatever. But in the maker community, it's a... So you can look at it one way as being, hey, it's super supportive. Yes. You know, and, and it it feels good when a a person of a higher stature, of, of you know, multi-thousand subscribers, you know, says, hey, that was, you know, a heart. But we could all benefit from some critique and some, and some you know, or uh, um, you see somebody making something and, and you go, oh, well, wow. either you need to stop that doing was that. Like fantastically dangerous in the yeah. way you did that, yes, or there was such a way better way to do that, uh, or the the design of it looks completely lopsided, and if you just put something out here, it would even it out. Those kind of things, which I think you'd get sharing a workshop with somebody or all that. So since you don't do that, you're doing it over the internet. You need to be able to get that across to somebody. And we shouldn't be afraid to do it, but I do find I am. I think it's a little difficult, though, with social media when you look at the toxicity of somewhere like Twitter, where it is the first reaction of Twitter is, rah, 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 you know, like tearing everything down. And I think Instagram goes a little too far, maybe in the other direction, at least in the communities that we're in. Yeah, like the, the maker. Yeah. Right. So. There's a balance in there, and I don't know that we have figured out as a culture how to effectively communicate on social media and be able to get that sort of thing across. Because even in person, it's difficult to discuss that kind of thing and to and to talk about it. Uh, there was a an incident that I had with a with a good friend of mine, and he you know he and I have been making things for years and talking about the things that we make and going back and forth and. Um, he had looked at one of my pens and he's just like, oh my God, this thing's perfect. It's, you know, this thing's amazing. And I'm just like, no, 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 look, we're not around other people. You don't have to blow smoke up my ass about this. Like, this is, this is not a perfect thing. And he's like, oh no, no, this thing is really like, this is amazing. Like this, you should be really proud of this. And I said, no, there are significant problems with this, both from an execution and from a design point of view. 
And so he said, well, what are they? And I said to him, no, I'm not going to tell them to you right now. And he's like, well, why not? I said, because you don't want to know. If you, you know, think about this for a couple of weeks and come back to me in two or three weeks time. And if you still want to know what's wrong with this, then I will tell you. But you have to think about this and you have to make a conscious decision that you want to know because it will, you'll be ruined. Like you will not be happy that you know this stuff. And he was a little put off and he went away and, and came back three weeks later. He's like, no, I want to know what's wrong with this. And so we, we sat down and looked at one of my pens and we spent an hour and a half tearing it apart. And I told him all of the things that were wrong with it. And this was me critiquing my own stuff. And I know what's wrong with my pens. I know what's, you know, I know the design flaws. I know the execution flaws. And at the end of it, he said, I wish that I didn't know that. So there's sometimes there is too much. Ignorance is bliss. Right. And, and so there is a balance there. And I think one of the things we need to do as a culture is become better at being able to give that critique, being, being better at being able to, to express that. I built a table yesterday, actually, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> in an hour and a half. And it was literally throwing together. And the design aesthetic of this table was uh, it's supposed to look like it, uh, in, it would fit in a post-apocalyptic thing. What, I was building it with a friend of mine here from work. And it was great because we were working on it. And uh, I'd say, oh, I want this to be like this. And, and his ideas and mine just came together. And it ended up being five times better than it would have been mm-hmm. in that short amount of time. But it's just because you're, you're sitting working with somebody and you, you hold a piece of wood up and you draw. and you, That is the, the kind of interaction that is most valuable to a maker to, or some, somebody making. I hate the, the term maker. I know. So do I. I, I think that a lot of people would benefit from working in a space with other people and seeing what other people Without, are doing yeah. and being seen. Yeah. Yes. I, that's, I suppose where I was going, but then I think about that and, and I don't want to have somebody coming over and telling me everything I'm doing is wrong. Well, the, the trick the is having the right person yeah. looking over your shoulder. I think one of the other things that I've noticed over the years now, I'm, I'm a little bit odd when it comes to being a maker because I haven't focused on a medium or even two mediums or three mediums. I do everything, right? I've done everything from work with fabric and sewing to leather to, uh, you know, to metal work, to woodwork. You know, I haven't limited myself to any one medium. And I think that being exposed to more and more mediums is actually beneficial. And so I think what most people would benefit from is if they were a woodworker, not being in a shop with another woodworker, they would benefit from being in a shop with a welder or being in a shop with a a sculptor or being in a shop with a painter. And I think that being exposed to different designs and different mediums and different challenges gets you thinking about things in a way that you didn't, you wouldn't if you were stuck in, you know, if you had two woodworkers stuck in the same room, it's like, oh, why did you do that? You should have used, you know, a number, a number six, four plane as opposed to a number five smoothing plane. And you've screwed up your dovetail joint over here. Exactly. Like, why did you choose a 14 degree dovetail when you could have done a 16? So this is the thing that would be nice if we could figure out how to, how to get that feedback in Instagram. Like that, that, because that is where you have all the the cross pollination of people. Like some somebody works in cement, somebody is sewing, so, you know, all those things. 
and that they could look at your designs and go, you know, I've seen this. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? That that kind of stuff, which, you know, maybe the way to do that is to start doing that without being negative. Yeah. You know, like to try to just do that in Instagram and uh, try to kick off. I think what we should do is just set out and fix Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, the first thing is we need to get it out of the hands of Facebook, I think. And and it probably breaks all of the principles of design, Instagram. Well, it's (laughs) funny, as you were talking about Instagram earlier, it brought to mind a a quote from the film. Dieter said that the age of of thoughtless design for thoughtless consumption is over. But what uh, saddens me a little bit about things like uh, Instagram and, and TikTok and these social networks is that they are very thoughtfully, almost slyly crafted services that are thoughtfully designed for thoughtless consumption. Yes. They, they're intentionally created so that you get that dopamine hit to, oh, I, I, got an, I just got another like on my, my post or, oh, look, I'm just going to refresh it because, oh, look, there's another post that's just come up. And yeah, they're, they're designed in a way to create less thought and less, it's easy to follow 2,000, 5,000 people. Well, how can you meaningfully go through and, and see the work that 5,000 people are posting on Instagram? You can't do that, right? There's no, there's just no way. Like I've got, you know, I think I've got 200 people, maybe 150 people that I follow on Instagram. And fortunately, most of them don't post. It's, it's a core group of 20 people that actually post on Instagram that I follow. And if it was more than that, I would start unfollowing people because now I can go through and I can meaningfully look at the work that people are posting in my Instagram timeline. If I followed 700 people or 1,000 people or 5,000 people, I'd never be able to see what people are doing and I wouldn't be able to, to do it in a meaningful way. So you want people to follow you, yes. but you don't want to follow people. I want to be one of the 50 people that they follow. Right? I'm hoping that the things that I do and the things that I post are meaningful enough to them and challenging enough to them that they are interested in seeing what I do on a regular basis. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm not claiming what I do on Instagram is valuable in any way, but it, I do try to post something if, I, if it's special in some way. I'm not trying to post something every hour. Yeah, I don't think it's it necessarily like, needs to be special, week. but I think it needs to be it needs to have be a bit eye opening or at least see a little Insightful bit of what's going somehow. on. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope at least. Somewhere in there, he's is this quote: uh, "Design has become a backdrop for beautiful appearance for the stylish." Yeah, we could lose our orientation at a point in time when orientation is needed as never before. Not sure if those are together, but design is becoming kind of a stylish thing. Like people are, are is, is that a good or a bad thing? Like uh, are pe- people are buying purses or. Uh, well, I think again, the problem that say. this goes back to, you know, well, this goes back to my concern about, is it, is it usable item? And I think that a lot of designers are ignoring that part of it. it. They're ignoring the usability and they're saying, no, I want this to have, you know, whatever I want my, I want the clasps on this bag to be my, my logo. Well, okay, that's great, but does the clasp work? Can you can that's, you get into the can you get into example. the bag? I was just 
absolutely horribly un, unusable things yeah. that people come up with just so they have a logo is there or, yeah. or a design element. And and so the, that's something that you have to – you always have to consider and you – and I think a lot of designers don't consider it anymore. It's not something that they care about. And it's it's also funny the – like a lot of things I will buy – I will, I will buy them and I don't want things to be ostentatious. I don't want people to know. I, w- I would, I would, I'm the kind of person who's sort of horrified if somebody comes up and says, wow, that, you know, what a great watch or something like that. I really like love that, that Bell & Ross that you're wearing. Yeah. And, and I, I may have paid more than I could have for something, but I, I, I do it because I appreciate hmm it for these kind of reasons i like to think anyway well, you're not I'm, yeah you're not buying something for its for the intrinsic cost that it has you're buying it because mm-hmm. it's something that you like enjoy the, design the gold of. toilet i have yeah is dead simple it's clean <laughs> you know there's none of the gaudiness and all that like you know flourishes sh- and all you are joking about this dear listener he is joking he doesn't have a gold toilet um, I, I do have an amusing story about uh, gold-plated toothbrush holders that uh, maybe someday I will tell. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's that's something I think a lot of people in the world are are still stuck on the consumption thing, and they're and they are saying, "Oh, look, I've got the new sexy thing. I've got this this new thing." The gold is so thoughtful; it conducts the <laughs> heat from your body. So it, much is it the right tone of gold, though? That's the key thing, right? Did they did they pay attention to the right and make sure that it's the right tone of eighteen karat gold? You know, it's like if you're making watches, frankly. I'm as happy to have, and this is just for when you're giving me your, the uh, sample one to try okay, for a while. Sure. I'm very happy I'm with notes. with the brass test watch. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it's the the design of it and the yeah. thought went into it. I don't need the silver one. I don't care. Exactly. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be in 18 karat gold. It doesn't need to be in platinum. It doesn't need to be in whatever. It it. Yes, a good design is good regardless of what the material is and what the mm-hmm. the value of the base object is. Yeah. I, I will say I, I was a little bit disappointed in his poor taste in cars. I was uh, I was yeah. a bit shocked. Uh, I thought that you know he in would two have ways, actually he would have better taste in he, uh, in cars. He yes, he's, sadly he did not drive a BMW. No, no, <laughs> I was I was a little shocked. <laughs> he he drove a nice Porsche. But and he doesn't like Tesla, so <laughs> that was interesting as well. And that that was an, an amusing. And again, I think that comes to comes back to him being a luddite. He pissed me off twice in a row. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty happy about the Porsche. Oh yeah, you're happy about the Porsche. But, <laughs> um, I, and I think that goes back to him him being so technologically adverse. And I think that's one of the reasons why overall my impression of him. And what he thinks of the future is he's very pessimistic about the future. And I think a lot of that comes down to his dislike for technology. In in that context, it's the context in which it, he wasn't necessarily saying anything negative about Tesla from what I got from that, that portion of the film. In context, what it was was that he sees cars as the wrong solution to the design problem. Because the, the question that was proposed to him was whether why he didn't design cars and he felt that because fundamentally for him they're they're solving a problem in the wrong way it's the and wrong that we need to have it's the wrong solution to the problem human-centric design to our transportation system 
Yeah, and that was one of the things that I think did get cut because there was a comment from the from early on when he I think he made a, a stronger statement about Tesla in the first version of the of the film that we saw. The current version, you're right, the, the comment isn't as, as strong as that. Uh, it's certainly not Tesla specific. And and I, I have to agree to some degree, in some ways the the problems of our driving are not something that are going to be entirely solved by having better cars. You know, this goes back to the the Henry Ford comment. Uh, whether it, it's apocryphal or not, I don't know, but it, it makes sense. And, you know, he said in the late 1800s, early 1900s, if you had asked people what they wanted, they would say, I want a better horse and carriage. And what they gave them was a car and they, they didn't imagine the car. If they had imagined the car, they might have asked for it, but they didn't they didn't know what to ask for. And I think we're at a point where what people are asking for is a better car, but what they really need is a better something else. But so with regard to Tesla, I, I hate the look of a Tesla car. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm horrified by the way they look. And I, but I love the technology inside it and the, and the ideas and the things that it, it, it was doing when he first was coming out with that company. So it was like people didn't know they wanted an electric car. Number one, or and the car companies were refusing to build them. Hmm. They weren't just refusing to build them; they were taking them back from the people who bought them. Yeah, 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 you know, and and that people were when they would build an electric car, it was like they'd take a a smart car and make it smaller and uglier, put a tiny battery in it, and put a little tiny battery and it would go like thirty kilometers or fifty kilometers. Well, this is the frustrating. This is the thing that frustrates me about BMW is that's that's what their their current policy is. Instead of taking their existing cars, which are very nice. They're now designing new cars, which are ugly and mm. are really not, they don't drive as well and, and everything. And, so yeah. then they went along and, and proved that you could make a performance car, proved that you could have a long drive time and, and, um, and all that. So to prove that you could, you, it was a, a viable car that, that you didn't have to compromise on anything. And they went, you know, and they, the whole thing about building the Model S first and then uh, the X and then the three so that they had the funding from the initial cars to build the, the mass market one and all that. And they've, and now every car manufacturer has electric cars and, and these are going to be become popular as fusion hits and uh, all these things. So it, it, it needed to be done to kickstart things, but the design, the actual shape of the car it is, is rather horrifying. And it, it, uh, fortunately I've never bought cars because of their exterior design. No, I, I don't see absolutely. the... Absolutely, BMW, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, one of the things, one of the ways I look at it is that I'm not looking at the car. I'm driving the car and I don't see the exterior of the car. As long as the exterior of the car does what it needs to do, I, I'm not particularly interested in, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't really bother me a lot until you go too far and, you know, you create an Aztec or... Uh, an i3 or something like that those and yes i did just compare the horrible design of an aztec <laughs> to the horrible design of an i3 and that's harsh but the aztec on, was on much aztec. more comfortable yeah. to sleep in than the i3 <laughs> <laughs> yes that, that the aztec did have that going for it you could turn it into a tent and and uh and sleep in it it's human-centered design for you right there <laughs> that's right but I, again i think that's still just a stopgap i think that the bigger problem here is that cars are really the wrong way to be dealing with our, our fundamental problems of, of transportation. 
And so that I think that's the point that he was making. One of the one of the neat little sort of side tangents about the transportation was this uh, trolley system mm-hmm. that was in the town that he grew up in, and it was a trolley that went up a hill into a um, into a park or something like that. It's the the vernicular railway in yeah. um, Nuremberg Park. Yeah, that was an interesting design because the the power is generated through pumping water from the basin at the bottom to the top. And then the cars are attached to each other and the car at the top is filled with water, which makes it heavy enough to then pull the car that's at the bottom up as it's going down. And then at the bottom, it dumps the water that it had, goes into the pond, which can then be pumped back up to the top. And I thought that was, it was such an elegant design. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't solve a lot of our transportation problems. And in the you know wintry hell that we live in, uh, that would be uh, unusable for it's half hard to the year. pump ice up a hill. <laughs> it is hard to pump ice <laughs> up the hill. Half the year is being generous. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Some years it's longer than that. There's a a, a lift lock in a, a small town near here named uh, Peterborough, and uh, it operates on a similar principle that the the two locks are like big bathtubs, boat sized bathtubs that are on hydraulic cylinders, and you the one at the top uh, opens up. And the water level up there is about a uh, twenty-five centimeters higher hmm. than than uh, the water level at the at the bottom. So it, the lift lock fills up and has more weight than the one at the bottom, hmm. and then it automatically goes down and pushes up the other lock, hmm. which then it, the water level is twenty-five, thirty centimeters low. And then as they open the doors, that extra water flows in, and the boat that's in there just rises up a little bit and then sails off. Hmm. And now that one has all that extra mass to make it work. So it actually works with, with in this case, with no pumping, no yeah. anything. It's just completely designed by the uh, the extra mass of the water in, in these bathtubs. Yeah, if you're ever in the Ottawa area, first of all, don't come in winter. It, it's it's miserable. If you're here in the summer, try and experience the lock system that that's used in the Rideau Canal. It is absolutely fascinating. It's 150 years old close to 150 years old at this point. And it is an absolutely fascinating system that uses these principles of, of just mass and, and potential energy and to allow you to move large boats up and down this, uh, this lock system. And uh, it, it is really a, a great design, and it hasn't changed dramatically since it was built. Uh, they've obviously done some upgrades to it, but it hasn't really changed. So, yeah, that's, that's a, a, f- a, wonderful, a wonderful system if you look at the way that it works. And again, that's great design because it... It is very environmental. It's it's very sustainable. It it just relies and it's on long lasting. It's and exactly it's, by God, it hits everything. <laughs> <laughs> so transportation is one aspect of our our built environment. And early on in the film, Rams was asked what what he thought one of the most important things to design was. His response has informed uh, a lot of the ways I've been looking at at things since uh, seeing the film the first time. Now. You happen to be in the midst of quite a, a transition, the environment of your, your company at the moment, Rich. Um, as the the founder of the company, you have a, a lot of sway and a, and a lot of influence. Is this something the, that you're thinking about or did his comments resonate with you at all? Yeah. So we had a, a designer who gave a, a broad landscape to things, but I've been over there every day 
working. And so I'm there answering every question from every builder, but I'm also building fairly large portions of the, the thing myself. Post-apocalyptic furniture? Yeah, post-apocalyptic furniture, uh, uh, great art things. I humbly compare myself to Jeff Koons with... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> humbly. I'm coming up with the ideas and then handing it off to somebody to say, you, you go do the busy work on that now. And uh, But over and over again on different things. The kitchen cabinetry is all uh, designed to be in, to to mimic a Mondrian painting. And it was so easy to do. Uh, and and all of the, the kitchen cabinet fabricators and whatnot had a little heart attack when they saw the design <laughs> come in. But then they looked at it and realized, oh, they've actually designed this as dead normal cabinets that just happen to have bright colors An interesting on them. layout. An interesting layout. They're not in a square row, you know. And the neat thing is I, I get to experiment with things because our office is... Uh, I think we're moving into 20, 25 or 30,000 square feet. So I get a big canvas to play with that I could, I get to try things on a large scale that I could absolutely never try at home because there would be marital issues uh, <laughs> with, with building a post-apocalyptic room, say, or, or putting, you know, one of the pieces of art is uh, 60, 70 feet long uh, up on the wall. And trying to find ways to do all these things. Um, you, you've repainted the voice of fire, haven't you? No. <laughs> no, but it has an Andy Warhol component to it. <laughs> oh. We're always riffing off. Fairy. There's a Shepherd Fairy part to it. There's the Mondrian part to it. A bit of Banksy in there. There's a bit of Banksy. There's, uh, yeah, uh, all these things. And there's some things that I just thought of that just popped into my head. Something about a giraffe. Uh, that no one can believe is actually real. And it's, yes, there's actually <laughs> going to be a giraffe in this space. It just popped into my head one day and I said, yeah, this would be funny. And and uh, But all of those, uh, along with just being something that you can experiment with and play with, it, it does change the environment and it, it turns it from a beige box. Yeah, it was a beige cube. A form. horror when we, we first toured the space and everything was beige. It was, and I was just... I just couldn't get the beige out of there fast enough. It, it's a place where imagination and dreams go to die. The these the beige, beige yeah. cube farms, yeah. and they the so we we have bright bright colors in our space. We have uh, fun things and interesting things. I'm trying to make meeting rooms that are some of them have uh, couches that, like that that stimulate thought in different ways, and that different people can gather in different kind of rooms, and we'll come up with ideas that the space will help them somehow. And maybe that sounds a bit full of myself, but but some people will work better in a couch. Some people work better at a table. Some work, people work better standing, sitting, and some people work better in a post-apocalyptic nightmare. <laughs> so, yeah. And the design, everything is is designed to be simple and big fun. Maybe the floor in the kitchen is a bit over the top. We'll see. <laughs> Looks good. Yeah, it's crazy. It'll be a fun space. We'll be moving. We're moving in a week, so I have. That's what I'm basically doing, twenty four hours a day till then. Have you worked an optical illusion into the floor? What have you done? There? It has a bit of that yeah. to it. Yeah, it's not quite as bad as a moiré pattern off of an engine turned piece, but it's uh, it's getting there. So, any final thoughts, John, from you? You've been we've been talking a lot about what's going on. What what are your what are your final thoughts about this documentary? I 
couldn't help but compare it to Objectified as I like going into it and then also having watched it again. And there's close to a decade that separates the two films. And Dieter Rams was prominent in, in both, obviously more prominent in this one. I don't know if I'm just more more jaded, but I felt that Rams was, while funny at times in, in the way that Hustwit put the, the film together, I, I found it more somber than objectified. Yeah. And both Dieter Rams and Gary Hustwit seem to be very, very pointed in the the elements uh, of society today that uh, perhaps brought about that that somber or dismal outlook for for the potential future while at the same time painting a picture of of hope so rams was also very specific about saying that the designers have a very special place in society and that they they can infuse hope for the future in a way that say a, a politician cannot uh, and certain politicians uh, and certainly don't certainly don't yeah that's putting it lightly his his exact thing he said was the last thing we need is fear mm. politicians are incapable of removing this fear but architects and designers are capable of doing this yeah absolutely coming out of the the screening um, i felt there was a certain undertone that certainly not as as bright and cheerful about Apple as objectified was because mm-hmm. in objectified Dieter Ram spoke very highly of of Apple and, and Johnny and has. Johnny actually has a bit in the mm-hmm. in the movie as well yeah and uh, he is uh, you know conspicuously uh, amiss from from this particular film and uh, perhaps that has uh, a little something to do with uh, some of the the what's called so much a theme as a, a strong undercurrent through the, the film. That uh, is perhaps a, a little bit of a, a lashback against that, and yeah, you know, I, I thought that perhaps I was just maybe just a little in, in a different mood the night I saw the screening versus the uh, the released version, and that it, I seemed to be more jaded in the screening. But you, you've both assured me that uh, there are certain scenes that were were cut that I'd forgotten about. Yeah, I, I, we we won't go into the details of the the cut stuff, but there are certainly some comments that were cut that that changed the tone of the the movie a little bit. Yeah, I think the the things that I I enjoyed, I it was nice to see the progression of where he came from, what informed him, and how he actually created the world that he did. It was nice to see the humor mm-hmm. come out in him, the little Buddha that he has in the garden. It's it is so not Dieter Rams. Yeah. He his his garden is Japanese. It's a very Japanese theme. And it's funny if you see the the photos from the the sixties when he and his wife moved into that uh that house and the garden is identical when today as it was then. But it's funny when you see him and he's talking about his little Buddha, his little stone Buddha that he's got on the wall, there's a a humor in him that it, that doesn't always come out and this I think this this film did a good job of sort of bringing out his um uh some of that. And uh, it was certainly funnier than I than I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be very, very, very serious. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, his his uh, his humor certainly comes out in it, and that was nice to see. Uh, it was nice to see the environment that he lives in, because we see so many of the objects that he created in his life as a thing on a white field, and it's sitting all on its own. We don't see the world that it was created for. 
and seeing him in his home, seeing him in his office, he lives in the world that he created. His office in particular, there are very few items in there that he did not make himself or design himself. And so it is nice to see that. It's nice to see, okay, this is the ideal world. It's sort of like watching something like um, like 2001 Space Odyssey. You're going into somebody's world, that design, that designed world, or going into Blade Runner or something where you're going into somebody's mind and this is the, the world that they've designed. In this case, it, it's not just something that somebody created for a film and it's skin deep. This is really the world that he wanted and the world that he created and he lives in it. And that, mm-hmm. that was nice to see. So it was it was interesting seeing him as a human being living in his world. That was uh, that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most about it. I like seeing people's the people that he had worked with that mm-hmm. show up in the film and uh, the respect and the, mm-hmm. the joy of seeing each other again and and uh, just you could see that they enjoyed working together. Yeah, and were really happy to see each other again. Mm-hmm. And then and the curators and and galleries and all that there's still all the respect of it and you mentioned earlier uh john that people seeing him speak in germany and they were um so reverential to him or, or all that it was nice to see mm-hmm. like the, the the way he is he's he's certainly earned it's clear uh, that the current yeah, generation yeah, of designers yeah, appreciates who he is and respects yeah. who he is yeah yeah thank you Naoto Fuku, your, your Japanese is better than mine. Naoto Fukusawa, that called him the the yeah. first designer and the last designer, or first industrial designer and last industrial designer. Yeah, that was uh, Naoto Fukusawa. He was a designer in Tokyo, and that was nice seeing his commentary. Actually, I was first off, it was nice listening to the Japanese in there, but it was also nice watching him looking at an object, and he makes the comment that he's only ever seen this thing in pictures he's mm-hmm. never seen it in real life and it was nice seeing a designer and see the seeing the joy on his face as he gets to interact with this object for the first time that was uh that was kind of nice but yes his comment about Dieter being the first designer and the last designer was very very true i don't i don't know that we will ever see well maybe maybe johnny i mean he's he's been able to create the world that he wanted um now he's obviously dealing with electronics personal electronics and, and computers so i don't think his his range of design is quite as broad as, as Dieter's was because he's not designing furniture except for the odd piece that he's doing with Newson and things like that. Like every single piece of furniture at Apple was designed by their, their group. Right, but I, but that's not going out into the world, right? So, you know, that's not... It ought to. It, it ought to, yes, or, you're right. Hey, Johnny, if you're listening. Or anybody with a camera who visits Apple. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> they They don't make it out the front door. <laughs> I don't know that we're ever going to see somebody that's going to have that much leeway, you know, the, the leeway that that he and Johnny have at the, the companies that they were in. I don't know that we're going to see that again because it, it re- relies on, again, a visionary leader, you know, the Brown brothers or a Steve Jobs to recognize that somebody has the design intent and the vision to be able to to guide the whole design intent of a company. I don't know how much we're going to see that because I think too many leaders of companies too many founders they they need to make sure that everybody all the stockholders are happy that they're making enough money and that often doesn't lead to the you know good design well i sure hope you're wrong about that i hope i am too thanks for listening to off hours you can find detailed show notes at offhours.show if you'd like to keep up to date with the show 
Follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. It's still hard for me to say brown. Brown as opposed I to cannot. brawn. This is just totally wrong. <laughs> so for those of you in the rest of the world, you're you're probably pronouncing it brown as as the the Germans do and as they're supposed to, but here in North America it's been pronounced uh brawn for uh for many many years. Do you like have you ever seen a, a TV ad or anything for for brawn shavers or anything? No, I, I don't remember. Like I don't know that I ever have and had I would you know? Would they have in North America? Would they have made a TV commercial that pronounced the name right? Well, that's interesting because when you look at other products where the name of the product is is mispronounced in other parts of the world, I think of Nikon, right? Nikon cameras. That is how you pronounce the word Nikon. Hmm. And if you go to England, you'll hear people pronouncing it as Nikon. And if you come to North America, you'll hear people pronouncing it as Nikon. And so that's that's another one of those yeah. things where if if you don't see a commercial and hear how people are pronouncing it, it you have no idea what it actually is. I much prefer the Canon cameras. <laughs> well, you have questionable taste in in some things, and <laughs> well, that was one of the the primary reasons that Hans Wilsdorf settled on on Rolex as the name for for his company. It's because he he felt it would be pronounced the same way pretty much anywhere that the Latin alphabet was used. Well, and that's one of the challenges, especially with Japanese words. The pronunciation of I's and E's are very different than what North Americans or or actually anybody with from a classical language, um, how they're going to pronounce things. And an I is actually pronounced as an E, and an E is pronounced as an E. So Nikon is, is correct, mm-hmm. but most people look at it and think that it's a, an I sound, and so they pronounce it Nikon. So anytime I hear people pronouncing Japanese words, I always cringe because they've they uh, they always mangle them if they're if they're from a a classical language. So how do you pronounce Seiko? It's Seiko. Ah, all right. Thank you for the enlightenment. Seiko. But the I is pronounced E, so it's Seiko. 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 S E I. Seiko. Seiko. And same thing with. Omega. Omega is pronounced like that as opposed to Omega, which is how people tend to pronounce it in North America. But the original Greek pronunciation is Omega. Well, I'm sure the original Greeks are pretty pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there are still people who speak the language. It's not a it's not a dead language. I I hear tell of it. (laughs) I'll tell you my Greek joke one day. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Can't tell it here.